Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Dear Diary. Sixth grade. February 14th. 1991. I am really depressed. How could she break up with me? Mom, you can't read this. Naming a band is really hard. I had to be convinced of the name, actually. I thought it was going to confuse people. In 2008, Kate Micucci and her friend Ricky Lindholm formed a band. They wrote satiric anthems about life's biggest issues, including dating, friendship, and ovaries. Pregnant women are smug. Everyone knows it. Nobody says it because they're pregnant. And when it came time to name their band, they chose one that paid tribute to two amazingly talented artists who, in the canon of pop culture, often get overshadowed. We named our band Garfunkel and Oates after Art Garfunkel and John Oates. As in the acclaimed but admittedly less celebrated halves of Simon and Garfunkel and Hall and Oates. And the choice made sense, since Kate has never been drawn to those who win the popularity contest. I always root for the underdog. It's more fun. In third grade, I was on a softball team called the Butterflies, and um, we were horrible. We lost every game. We were the worst. Uh, My coach told my dad I ran as fast as a rock, and um, I believe that I probably did. But yeah, we had a game against the undefeated team, the Bears. And of course, as every great underdog story goes, we beat the undefeated team, and they all cried, and we all went for ice cream, and it was like this great celebration, and I'll never forget it. And it was such a a kind of beautiful moment in my life as an eight-year-old to go, oh, this is possible. The butterflies beat the bears. Needless to say, Kate has always had a soft spot for those who don't get all the attention. So while most teenage girls of the 1990s were writing fan letters to Jared Leto, Kate's celebrity obsessions were much less predictable. I saw the musical Showboat, and Hal Prince directed it. And I was so into it that I wrote him a a fan letter. I don't know that many girls my age were writing Hal Prince fan letters. (laughs) I wrote a letter to Jodie Foster, Catherine Hepburn, Mr. Rogers, and he wrote me a, a beautiful letter back. I was about 18 when I wrote to Mr. Rogers, maybe 19. I was really getting into children's television at that time. I guess that sounds really funny. That didn't sound weird until it came out of my mouth. But of all her unusual teenage fan letters, One sticks out the most in her mind. 
I wrote a letter to John Williams. John Williams is one of the most amazing film score composers of all time. E.T. and Star Wars and Indiana Jones and the theme to Home Alone. I was writing a lot of piano music at the time and I wrote John Williams because I, I needed some advice. Kate's letter starts off simple enough. July 31st, 1995. Dear Mr. Williams, you are my very favorite composer. I watch you on television and love all of the movie scores you have done. My brother and I even use your movie soundtracks for our home video movies that we make on our own for fun. I'm a really big fan of yours. I even met you very briefly once after one of your concerts at the Garden But as the letter goes on, she can't help but geek out and, well, ramble. I always have music in my head, but I guess everyone does. It is just that sometimes I have original music in my head that I have never heard before. I am sure you know what I'm saying. At some point, she's just talking to him about her schoolwork. I ended up getting a D on my biology exam, which got me really upset. Until finally, she works up the nerve to ask him for guidance. Mr. Williams, I know you are really busy, and I understand if you are unable to help me out, but here is my problem. I hope to someday get my music published, but for now I would just like to be able to complete a beautiful song. I am hoping that you can advise me to a formula that I could use in order to accomplish this. Sincerely, Kate Micucci. You know what's funny? As I was reading this, I realized the music that I have gotten published, I don't know what John Williams would think of songs of Garfunkel and Oates. Because, yeah, I was able to finish a bunch of songs about blowjobs and dick jokes. But, you know, I think writing a fan letter maybe is just really important to the person writing it because they're able to share what that person means to them. When I was younger and writing letters to people, that really meant something to me. From PRX and Radiotopia, this is the Mortified Podcast. I'm Dave. And today, as part of our multi-episode tribute to unlikely celebrity obsessions, we're featuring kids who want to connect to their idols so badly that they launched letter-writing campaigns. Kids like Scott Schrake, whose obsession in the 80s involved feelings. Nothing more than feelings. I was the world's youngest male Barbra Streisand fan. And of course, I went through my Yentl phase. Give it up for Yentl, please. Where I wanted to be, uh, let me see if I get this right, I wanted to be a middle-aged woman playing a girl who must dress as a boy to attend yeshiva school in what is now Poland. Scott's so identified with Streisand that if a critic attacked her performance, he felt like he was the one being attacked. So much so that when a local newspaper savaged Yentl, Scott went ballistic. But rather than write fan mail to cheer up Barbara, he wrote hate mail to the critic, unleashing his inner diva. Like I said, feelings. Angry, bitter feelings. I clipped, little, maybe just a little bit obsessive, I clipped every ad from the newspaper as they appeared. And you can see, first it was a full page ad, then half page, and it's like the law of diminishing returns, but I kept them all, even though they're all exactly alike. And that was in the Detroit Free Press. And there was this overweight columnist in the paper, and he was always picking on Barbara, picking on her the size of her nose, and I didn't like it. And I, you know, I thought it was anti-Semitic. And I, I went to my dad and I said, uh, "What should I do about this guy who's maligning my friend and idol? Re- me, really? I mean, he's really attacking me and mom." And my dad said, well, all you can do, and this is then as now, now we have comment sections, right? He's like, write him a letter. Back then, you wrote things by hand, so I kept a copy and I mailed a copy. Would you like to hear it? It's dated February 19th, 1984. Dear Mr. Talbert, that was the guy's name, Bob Talbert. By the way, he's dead. (laughs) 
I am sick and tired of you bad-mouthing Barbara Streisand and her movie Yentl, period. She is the most talented woman in the world, and she is deserving of all our applause. But you seem to think Yentl is just another minimal effort, and Ms. Streisand is taking unnecessary credit for it. For your information, Barbara is almost single-handedly responsible for Yentl's success. It is a triumph, a superb accomplishment. What have you ever done? Besides, sit around writing your boring, opinionated, opinionated column and eating. Which is evident in your photo. I suggest... I suggest that until you do something great, you keep your mouth shut. Thank you. Scott Schrake, Birmingham, Michigan, age 13. Scott wasn't the only kid who sided with a scorned celebrity. In the 90s, Andrea Minnick was a teenager and just discovering the genius of Michael Jackson. As soon as I turned 13 and my mom let me switch on MTV, I was crazy for Michael Jackson. I loved Billie Jean. I loved Beat It. Of course, Thriller and Bad. But the song that probably really got me hooked from the Jackson 5 was I'll Be There about his pet rat, Ben. I just felt connected to him on like a soul level. And when Michael was suddenly on the cover of every tabloid facing some admittedly troubling allegations, Andrea decided it was time to reach out. There were lots of reasons why I felt like I needed to write to him, to encourage him through his hard times. For some reason, I, I felt like I had some advice to offer. And I think I was really hoping that we would become best friends, if not more. <laughs> and what did Andrea do when her letters went unnoticed? She attempted to commiserate with one of MJ's BFFs. I wrote to megastar Elizabeth Taylor. She hadn't done a whole, you know, that much in a while. And maybe she wasn't getting much fan mail. And maybe my odds were increased that she would somehow get a letter. <laughs> so here is a letter I wrote to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Dear Ms. Taylor. Hi, my name is Andrea Rita Dalton. I am 13 years old and I'm very worried about your friend, Michael Jackson. <laughs> I don't like writing to you to get to him, but I considered all the mail he'd be getting right now and, and decided that he'd probably never get that <laughs> and decided this was worth a shot. Anyway, I've been thinking about that boy a lot lately and have decided that until further news Michael couldn't have done what the boy said he did. And I'm not writing to you to get the scoop, but simply to call him and give him a message for me. <laughs> I can imagine what he might be going through. To a, <laughs> to a person as loving and emotional as Michael, to have this kind of allegation put on you must be overwhelming. 
All I know is whenever I feel really bad, all I have to do is listen to him and I'm instantly happy. I don't know how sad he is in real life, but he sure doesn't show it in his music. I just wondered if you could tell him I care and even when it seems that life couldn't get any worse, he'll always have a friend in Linfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> so if you get this letter, could you please pass it on to him and tell him my phone number and address, just in case he wants a friend? And would you also tell him that I believe in him and that he's finally found someone to answer his question, will you be there? In case you don't know, that's the title of his song from the movie Free Willy. <laughs> My answer is, I'll be there. I never heard back from either Elizabeth Taylor or Michael Jackson. Um, I wrote to them repeatedly over the course of like one and a half to two, maybe two and a half years. And uh, unfortunately, nothing. My craziness about Michael Jackson kind of slowed down. I remember vividly watching the MTV Music Awards, and it was when he had first announced that he and Lisa Marie Presley were getting married, and they did that, you know, over-the-top kind of kiss on stage to prove it to everyone. And I just remember thinking, the king of pop and then the daughter of the king of rock and roll. I can't compete with that at all. And he's gone and I moved on. <laughs> so Andrea managed to get over the lack of response from her obsession. But for others, the silent treatment can be deafening, especially for those of us who feel like we were born to rub shoulders with greatness. My father reminded me a couple years ago when he was moving his stuff out of storage, he called me up and he said, I found your Sid Caesar autograph. And I didn't remember what he was talking about. And apparently when I was two years old, I loved Sid Caesar. And I found out that Sid Caesar was doing some dinner theater in a place called Framingham, Mass. And I begged my parents to take me to meet him. And they did. And I still have this autograph in a frame in my office. I'm looking at it right now. Ever since he can remember, Ken Reed has been transfixed by the people he saw on TV, which for him at least, turned out to be a good thing. My parents, I think, you know, they had a rocky relationship. You know, my dad was very distant, but he had real anger issues. My mother was also uh, sort of the victim of an incredibly abusive household growing up. And so her vices were gambling and uh, buying, you know, thousands of dollars worth of things from Spiegel catalogs and, uh, you know, hiding them under the bed. And we were always having, you know, people that she was helping, in air quotes, you know, hiding out at our house or uh, you know, we'd have to run and drop something off somewhere, or like bookies showing up or things like that. I was always being babysat at bars. There was a real just lack of stability. It was enough to make any kid restless. I also, as a kid, struggled with really terrible insomnia. I only slept about two hours a night. I had terrible depression and anxiety ever since I can remember. And so one of the things that was sort of my salvation at that time was television, which was my absolute window into worlds I never thought I could ever, ever experience otherwise. I wrote letters to everybody. I wrote to Weird Al Yankovic. I wrote to Janet Jackson. I wrote to the show Night Flight that was on USA Network. I started writing letters to everybody anything I could. 
I would get responses back. That would usually be a form letter or something like that. It was exciting to have a reason to want to come home every day. I would come home from school and look in the mailbox and I got mail and that was a reason to want to go home. Here's Ken sharing his childhood fan letters in Boston at Club Oberon. Like most people who are in a chaotic, sort of uh, depressing living situation, I turned to solace in a book. And the book that I found solace in was the TV Guide. I paid for my own subscription as a child. (laughs) And every Wednesday I would rush to the mailbox and I would feverishly flip through the TV guide and and with a notebook and a pen and write down every single thing I would watch that week. And the TV guide was important to me because it gave me something to look forward to and it never let me down. If something was listed in there as being on Thursday night, no matter what happened that week, that would be on Thursday night. So I would know it was consistent, which I did not have in my life normally. Now, that wasn't enough for me. I needed to reach out to the people that were on television and somehow get them to realize I was a person and I was real, just as they were. And at the time, I was particularly obsessed with a television program called Kids Incorporated. which if you are unfamiliar, the show takes place in a post-apocalyptic Brooklyn (laughs) where white children are forced to perform soulless covers of freestyle pop hits of the mid to late 80s (laughs) on an hourly basis. I'm just an average man with an average life. My favorite cast member of that show was a gentleman by the name of Ryan Lambert. Uh, I am a heterosexual man. I was a heterosexual boy, but I did have a non-sexual homosexual crush on (laughs) Ryan Lambert at this time. He was my favorite cast member. He was in a movie called The Monster Squad where he played a real badass. Uh, Saw the movie opening day because I was such a big fan. I wanted to write him a letter and it was difficult to find addresses to write to people back in those days. I used to purchase teen magazines, which were for girls. And... um, (laughs) they would have addresses for fan clubs and that sort of thing. Obviously, they did not have a Ryan Lambert fan club, which is still a problem. But um, (laughs) another cast member on Kids Incorporated was far more famous. She had a hit single called Toy Soldiers. Her name was Martika, and you may remember her. Uh, I'm sure she's grateful. But she did get her address or an address to write her letters printed in teen magazines. So I had a brilliant idea. She's on a show with Ryan Lambert. She probably knows him. Why don't I write her a letter to give to him? So this was the letter that I wrote to Ryan Lambert by way of Martika. Dear Martika, my name is Kenny Reed and I am eight. I think you are okay. (laughs) I thought Toy Soldiers was a good song. I know you're friends with Ryan Lambert because you're on Kids Incorporated together. I love his parts of the show. 
can you give him this letter? I did not have an address for him. Then I had about half a page of space, and then Ryan. Not dear like I did with Martika, it's much, much less formal. Ryan, my name's Kenny Reed and I am eight, and I live in Melrose, Mass. I am the biggest Ryan Lambert fan around here. That was true. I loved Monster Squad. I love your singing on Kids Incorporated. I asked my parents for a leather jacket and I want to play the guitar. I bought some gloves like yours and I wore them to school, but I stopped because kids were mean. <laughs> I would start my own Monster Squad if there were any other kids around here who liked cool things. Are you putting out a record? I would ask for it for Christmas and listen to it all the time. Thank you. So obviously I never received a response to that letter, um, mostly because I think Martika just didn't pass it along. That's probably the problem. <laughs> but I started writing tons and tons of letters and I started just getting autographed photos of people back. There would be no response, it would just be an autographed photo. And I sort of developed this theory that these people didn't read the letters. They just had a stack of autographed photos, they would look at their return address and just mail it out. So when I was 13, I decided to test that theory. And the subject of my test was a gentleman by the name of Isaac Lidsky. Isaac Lidsky played the character of Weasel in Saved by the Bell, the new class. <laughs> season one only. So I wrote him a letter, and this was, this was the letter I wrote him to test my theory that they don't read letters, they just automatically send you an autographed photo. Dear Mr. Lidsky, how dare you? How dare you, sir? Do you think that we, the viewing public, are stupid? <laughs> In your portrayal of the character of Weasel on the television program Saved by the Bell, The New Class, you are clearly ripping off Dustin Diamond's seminal portrayal of iconic character Screech <laughs> from the original Saved by the Bell. Did you know that a mink is a kind of weasel? A kind of weasel that people skin. <laughs> and wear as a coat. I'm not saying I want to skin you. <laughs> and wear you as a coat. And I'm not saying I want to see you skinned and worn as a coat. What I am saying is that I hate you. <laughs> I 
and then I, I signed it, not your fan, Ken Reed. P.S. Please send me an autograph photo. So, my theory was incorrect. Um, they do, in fact, read these letters. I found this out when I came home from school one day, and my father asked me the question, hey, did you threaten to kill a kid named Weasel? <laughs> to which I replied, yes. Or it was probably more like, probably. And he said, well, the, the Culver City Police called and said, do not contact him again, or there will be some sort of consequences. <laughs> Learned my lesson. But at this point, I was a little bit drunk with power because I had, I had reached into the void, and it had reached back. I never had to formally apologize to him. I did feel bad about it. And when I was about 20 years old and the, you know, it was easier to look people up with the internet, I, I decided I would just see what he was up to and you know, try to apologize to him. And I looked him up and it turned out he was going to Harvard, which is very close to where I live. Um, and that uh, he was going for law school, but that he was also going blind. So I never attempted to contact him after that because I, I didn't want it to get worse. If Isaac Lidsky was listening to this podcast, I would first and foremost say that as an adult, I now can appreciate his portrayal of Weasel and Saved by the Bell, the new class, and that, you know, I, I held no ill will towards him personally, and that in hindsight, my barometer of what is a, th a threatening thing to receive was probably way out of whack, and uh, I, I would apologize and hope that it did not bring him too much turmoil in his life. That was Ken Reed in Boston at Club Oberon. Now, just to put everyone at ease, including us, we Googled Isaac Lidsky, and I am happy to say we can all rest easy tonight. According to Wikipedia, not only did Isaac graduate from Harvard with honors at 19, he got a law degree also from Harvard, and then he became the first blind law clerk to serve the U.S. Supreme Court. And because that wasn't impressive enough, he's also an author with Random House, a motivational speaker, and he's run a multi-million dollar company. His TED Talk has inspired over 1.7 million viewers. Going blind taught me to live my life eyes wide open. That's just really scratching the surface. So Isaac Litsky, more than fine. As for Ken Reed, his list of accomplishments isn't nearly as long. Yet. But he did manage to achieve one of his biggest childhood dreams. I did not hear back from Ryan Lambert at that time from that particular letter. But weirdly, uh, about four years ago, I started a podcast. And at one point, I had Ryan Lambert on the show. And that was very, very strange. And when Ken invited Ryan to be a guest on his podcast, TV Guidance Counselor, he worked up the courage to ask him the question that's been on his mind for decades. Were you getting like bags and bags of fan mail and all this yes. kind of thing? So I imagine there was probably some odd things there. Yeah. Did they screen him for you? Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah, my my manager. Prisoner email. I didn't right see anything. Yeah, I yeah. didn't ever really see anything. I, I read I read a few here and there. Like like I said, it was 
14, 15 year old punk. Yeah. The asshole. You're not like, sit with the style no, of No, fuck. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, give yeah. a shit about your mail. So sad. I blame Martika. That was Ken Reed, and before that, Kate Micucci, Scott Schrake, and Andrea Minnick, sharing their childhood writings with no embellishing, no exaggerating, just God-given awkwardness. You can listen to Ken's podcast, TV Guidance Counselor, by visiting tvguidancecounselor.com. You can also hear Scott Schrake's excellent storytelling podcast, Story League, which you can also see on stage in D.C., by visiting storyleague.org. And finally, you can also hear more of Kate's band at garfunkelandoats.com. And this concludes today's episode, where we learned it's incredibly easy to write an off-color fan letter, but fewer as creepy as this one, as given to Kate in person. It was handed to me, so so that I had a face to put to the, the person who wrote it. He was very cute, by the way. It was like a poem, and it was like, we can go to the carnival, we can ride the Ferris wheel, we can go ride the go-karts and have some cotton candy, and then we can fuck. It was really sweet to that last line, and for some reason that note was wet. And I don't want to know why. To share the shame, you can find Mortified on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can visit getmortified.com. As many of you know, the Mortified podcast is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, which is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Big thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. And if your company would like to support our podcast, we'd love it. Email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Our podcast production team for this episode includes Katie McMurrin, Shelby Aladmani, Pooja Bhatt, Neil Ketcher, and myself, Dave Nadelberg. Music by Gordon Bash, Alex Burke, Adam Smith, The Angels, Zoe Rose Palladino, and Snakes, Snakes, Snakes. Additional thanks to Lance Roberts Studios, Hadley Dion, and all the dedicated Mortified Live producers whose work make the stage show possible. Until next time, we remind you that we are freaks, and we are fragile, and we all survived. I am a huge John Williams fan, and I always think of him when you fly American Airlines, when the doors open, there's a bell that goes ding, 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 and it's the first four notes of the Home Alone theme. So I think of him every time I fly American Airlines. <laughs> do, 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 do,